everybody welcome back to the stream my goodness okay sorry i messed up my audio at the beginning here and i was speaking but i was speaking to no one i promise i made a whole bunch of funny jokes and i guess nobody heard them but i promise they were absolutely uproariously funny i'd like to spend some time tonight doing a live read for this piece called the platform wars and tonight we're going to read part one which is the introduction and then part two which is titled twitter and the blue check these pieces are rather short, but they take a really long time to be concise and get to the points and make everything very digestible. So I hope that you enjoy these pieces if you've been following them along. I hope that this can provide a framework of sorts for the weird changes that we're going to see in the next few months and years with some of these big platforms. So the piece begins, The Platform Wars. TikTok versus Meta versus Twitter versus Substack versus Blue Sky versus Mastodon versus Patreon versus Google versus Amazon versus more. Let's fucking go. We're at an inflection point for social media. Elon Musk has radically transformed Twitter. A TikTok ban looms on the horizon. The metaverse is stalled indefinitely. And Web3 is hibernating in deep winter. Here's what happens next. In recent months, online content creators have observed higher click-through rates when posting images of URLs as compared to click-out links. Algorithms are serving these images of URLs to many more viewers, some of whom will manually tab out and type in the address, over serving content with embedded hyperlinks that may bring their captured audience elsewhere. This seems to be the case across all platforms. Try it for yourself and see. There has always been a mild algorithmic penalty for clickout content, but Twitter has taken it to new heights in its ongoing battle against Substack. Today, tweets that link directly to Mastodon or Substack cannot be reshared. Similarly, swipe up links on an Instagram story now limit your reach. The same goes for YouTube videos whose captions contain links to articles, Patreon, or anything else. These content skirmishes prefigure a broader platform war. The Platform Wars is a stage of social media where platforms viciously compete for data and users by locking out features and the ability to move between these now distinct spheres. While this somewhat existed before, it will soon massively ramp up. All platforms have deployed nearly identical tools. $5 rolling subscriptions, live streaming, long-form posts for premium users, private chats, vertical video shorts, and more. In the short term, Platforms will compete on the level of culture, i.e. which sites have the best offerings for content. In the long term, they will compete on the level of network effects, towards the end goal of establishing an everything app monopoly. Whether it be Elon Musk's new X app, Meta, or something else entirely, eventually a quasi-state analog to WeChat will arise. Soon you will post tweets, call rideshares, order Seamless, and dial telehealth from an all-in-one app. 
In the siloed model of the internet, your doctor being out of network might mean that they are on Meta, but not on the Amazon Health x Twitch x Whole Foods stack. This was the kind of dystopian future scenario myself, Brad Trammell, and Mike Pepe used to talk about in art and tech reading groups back in 2011. Right now, I'm writing on Substack. Later, I will post the article to Twitter. Then I will screenshot it and post to Instagram stories. <laughs> After, I'll remediate the text to Patreon, which I will post in the Discord that will notify everyone when I'm live on Twitch, likely reading this very post. Surreal to <laughs> do that bit on the stream right now. By the way, I'm also on Blue Sky too. I never fell for the Mastodon meme, but congratulations or I'm sorry that happened. This increased level of administrative friction will slowly disincentivize creators from posting on every platform and lead them to optimize for a select few, perhaps even just one. As we exit the duopoly stage of social media, the incumbents still have a distinct advantage. But legacy sites have become overly populated by ads and may shed market share to their alternatives. Facebook and Instagram are now just cable TV for the millennial generation. There are already sharp taste distinctions between people who get their news and culture from mainstream platforms, the mall, versus that new cool site with weird stuff, the niche record store a few blocks down. In Platform Capitalism, Nick Zernicek describes a key example where Uber and Google compete to capture data over roadways. You can listen to our podcast on the topic here, Nick Zernicek on Platform Capitalism. Uber maps the entire continent of Europe every week or so, whereas Google dispatches its own cars to map the same territory every few months. The data is so valuable that companies refuse to share or even sell it to their competitors. Similar dynamics are now taking place on the social parts of the web. In the late 2010s, growth incentives aligned for cross-posting between medium-specific platforms, like Spotify to Instagram. But in the early 2020s, the macro incentives have shifted and platforms will attempt to pen traffic in. You will still be able to share a product from Facebook Marketplace to Instagram Stories because they are both in the same meta-universe, but you won't be able to share a podcast from Substack to Twitter because Twitter already has a competing feature with Spaces. Soon we will see more lockouts and competition with less integration and cooperation. Here's the good news. In the short term, this will likely yield a better media ecosystem. The terms of service will vary from platform to platform. Some stacks will lean clearly left or right. There will be fewer instances of context collapse or pose law. It's probably better to have the Proud Boys on Gab and Antifa on Discord instead of having them fight each other on the sole option of Twitter. People can choose what they want to see and where they want to spend their time. A more balkanized media landscape, alongside a consensus mainstream, will likely yield less divisiveness overall and is likely a positive development. The more dystopian edge of this forecasting is the possibility for competing stacks to make TOS-level decisions in a quasi-state capacity. For example, Red platforms might only allow he and her pronouns, while blue platforms could label every user as Z. In other instances, protected legal speech or keywords associated with unionization might be banned. Once these ideological views are coded in, users will not be able to exit to their preferred political values because they remain materially reliant on other lock-in features of the stack, like cash, 
and healthcare data that are non-transferable. In this series, I will outline some considerations I've picked up during my time in the niche corners of art, politics, and tech. I will also discuss the changes to Twitter, TikTok, and more. Follow along as I publish over the next few weeks. So this piece came out, I think I'm doing these every three weeks or so, maybe one a month, uh, just thereabout. And this is the first installment of the Platform Wars, sketching this broad arc of some very near future developments we may see. Obviously, between the time that was published on May 10th and the second installment, June 7th, which we're about to read, a lot happened to Twitter. It's kind of surreal to write these things and then see the changes happen in real time. Um, it's a little spooky, <laughs> to be honest. And as I'm writing part three right now, I'm doing a very brief few sentences of commentary because clearly Meta launched threads, which has dramatically shifted the landscape with Twitter. There are platform lock-in effects like rate limiting, requiring them to log in to see any posts that's on the platform. And a lot, a lot seems to be changing. So let's dive into this next piece here, Platform Wars Part 2, Twitter and the Blue Check. This one is a bit longer. The introduction was very bare bones, trying to get to the most important parts of the argument. And this gets a little bit more in the weeds, although it's not immensely too long. I try to keep these concise, but we'll slowly work towards some more fine-tuned points here. Paying for a blue check on Twitter and Meta has radically shifted the online landscape. Some of these changes are good, most of them are bad, but many of today's news media commentariat are getting key issues wrong. I've spent the last few years making the unabashed argument for critical trolling and its important role in political discourse. In this piece, I want to trace the limits of our current social media rule set and its downstream societal impacts. Designing good communications infrastructure is not statecraft, and improving social media will not solve democracy, but it will bring us closer than what we have right now. Ad-driven models. LOL, are you seriously going to pay for social media? In the 2010s, society ceded its main communication network to an advertising platform. Much of today's online social ills are a result of these ad-driven dynamics that ruthlessly incentivize controversy, sensationalism, and divisiveness. Meme. This is the future libertarians want. Advertising accounts for a staggering 90% of total revenue for Twitter and over 97% of revenue for Meta. Attention is highly valuable, and it powers all of social media. On today's internet, great novels sink to the bottom of your feed, and culture war clickbait dominates over all. Each user is competing in a race towards infinite scale. There are clear incentives to inflame as many viewers as possible to make your content go viral. The less dependent our social media platforms are on the indirect subsidy of advertising, the less these antisocial engagement hacks will dominate their design. Reducing the degree to which big platforms are reliant on ad revenue will force them to tune algorithms away from outrage and more towards audience satisfaction. Basically, you're going to get served less rage bait and more of the cool stuff you currently have to find on Substack, Patreon, or similar Web 2.5 sites. Always remember, you don't get free-to-use platforms out of benevolent social democratic generosity. Twitter and Meta are selling your attention to advertisers. To get around this problem, you either need to pay for social media or create a public option. More about this later. 
Human moderation. LOL, but are you seriously going to pay for social media? For any platform that grows to a sufficiently large scale, real human moderation becomes cost prohibitive. Taking into account the very low labor costs in the developing world, even the vast resources of Google would run dry if they had to hire human workers to personally review every video on YouTube. When many lifetimes worth of content is uploaded every single day, there is a need for some level of algorithmic filtration. A low-cost subscription for human customer service on big platforms is likely desirable for small shitposters and medium-sized content creators. Remember, the big accounts already get this for free. For example, when podcast guest Douglas Lane, formerly of Zero Books, was shadow banned on YouTube, he was unable to appeal the algorithm that flagged his content. The channel lost months of revenue and views for a decision that was ultimately overturned. A $5 monthly service fee for the absolute guarantee that a real human person will pick up the phone and review your appeal makes sense for both creators and platforms. Already, there is no such thing as shadow ban on sites like Substack or Patreon because everything is already monetized. These Web 2.5 platforms can afford to carefully review content appeals and are incentivized to retain their user base rather than deplatform. In the case of political content, when an algorithm trips on a given keyword or image, we want to know that satire and edgy speech can be understood in their human context. Under the current design, criticisms are often flagged as endorsements of the very things they oppose. Posting memes that make fun of QAnon are clearly not showing support, but they tend to get flagged anyway. Before you ask, we can't open source the algorithms. Filtration needs to be a black box and it needs to constantly change. The worst actors are always in search of exploits. If static algorithms were made public, the resulting mimetic arms race would quickly turn YouTube into Stormfront. The Blue Check I laughed along with everyone else at the early exploits of trolls with lookalike accounts making public statements on behalf of corporations. And we have here a screenshot of the Eli Lilly and company. We are excited to announce that insulin is free now. <laughs> I, I did actually, I did really enjoy this stuff. Insulin is criminally overpriced in the United States, this type of trolling should be supported as a legitimate form of public dissent against a corrupt pharmaceutical industry. And we have here the quote tweet from Bernie Sanders. Uh, he's actually quote tweeting the real official Lilypad account that says, uh, we apologize to those who have been served a misleading message from a fake Lily account. Our official account is at Lilypad and we are criminally profiting off of insulin. Uh, they, they didn't add that last part. I just added that last part. But Sanders quote tweets and says, let's be clear, Eli Lilly should apologize for increasing the price of insulin by over 1200% since 1996 to $175 while it costs less than $10 to manufacture. The inventors of insulin sold their patents in 1923 for $1 to save lives, not to make Eli Lilly CEO obscenely rich. Indeed they did. The article continues here. But the downstream implications of this verification exploit go far beyond plummeting stock prices. 
When world leaders threaten each other online, we want to know with absolute certainty that the statements are coming from these individuals and not radical actors impersonating them to stoke conflict. To be sure, anonymity plays an important role in political discourse and should always be allowed, but a system of trustworthy verification for state officials is also necessary. Where the new check goes wrong. The crucial mistake of Twitter, Meta, and others is to bundle all of these features together. Moving away from ad-driven models, affordable human moderation, and trustworthy verification each have an important function independent of the others. They should never be linked together. For example, anonymous political accounts should have the option to be unverified with affordable access to customer support that carefully reviews their legal speech. Conversely, Politicians can refuse to pay for a platform or to boycott Twitter, but we do need to know it is verifiably them behind their political statements. Personally speaking, I have no big interest in Twitter. I don't have a large account or use it very often. I don't have a blue check, legacy, or paid on any platform. I'm happy to be a weird truth teller in my niche corner of the extremely online internet. But I do have to live in a society where our political class and journalists are absolutely obsessed with social media. To that end, it benefits all of us to have a set of universal rules that do not bend under the shifting whims of an oligarch. In a later part, I will discuss public options for social media and some of my preferred solutions. But for now, I will assume that big platforms will continue to be privately operated and consider solutions within that limited framework. In principle, we should not be opposed to paying a modest fee for social media, but the way it has been implemented thus far is fundamentally flawed. These core functions need to be disentangled, or we are doomed to repeat the chaos of the 2010s. Lastly, payments are here to stay. Web3 is on hold for the foreseeable future, but Stripe integrations for paywall digital content, like subscriptions, donations, and more, are generally producing a better media landscape. As much as people hate the idea of paying for anything, they vastly prefer it to the junk advertisers serve you on the For You page. Talking about digital economies is often a big hill to climb, so think of it like this. United States Post Office, indisputably the greatest American institution of all time, had the invaluable foresight to ask you to pay for a stamp when you send a letter. Meanwhile, we send our emails for free and wonder why the internet is full of spam. Making everything free online has resulted in unhealthy dopamine hacks, political division, and generally rewarded the most antisocial aspects of humanity. A small amount of network friction, such as a stamp, doesn't exclude anyone, but massively limits the infinite-scale exploits of online advertising models. I hope you find this to be a challenging and thoughtful assessment. Thanks for reading. In the rest of this series, I will outline some further considerations I've picked up during my time in the niche corners of art, politics, and tech. And that was the end of part two. Part three will come out in the next few weeks. I think the publishing schedule may end up such that the text for part three, that makes it out before the podcast version of this read-through. Hopefully what I do as three and four come out, I will do a second audio version that does the two short reads together. So if you prefer to get it in the podcast format or whatever you so please, uh, you can listen to it here. It'll just take a few weeks further to get everything out, doing them as chunks. So uh, it's a little bit easier to listen through. 
But yeah, that is uh, part one and part two of the Platform Wars. And I hope you enjoyed this content. I've been thinking through these questions for a little more than 10 years now in peer-organized reading groups from weird intellectuals and uh, people scorned from proper institutions that just so turns out that they were right about a very few important things. <laughs> so yeah, I'm enjoying this content and I hope you guys are too.